Hello and a very warm welcome to the Understanding Users podcast brought to you by Researchable UX. It's great to have you with me. I'm your host, Mike Green. I'm a freelance user research lead and digital consultant based in the UK. Over the coming weeks, I'm going to be chatting to various digital experts who I've had the pleasure of working with in recent years. They're from various disciplines, including user research, UX design, development, and product management. And they'll even be a digital business owner or two. I'll be talking to them about how they came to be in their current roles, what they've learned along the way, and what advice they may have for others getting into the field. These are intended to be relaxed, informal chats with professionals who are keen to share their experiences. So sit back and enjoy. In this very first episode of Understanding Users, Robin talks about his varied digital career, his current design work with product teams at Waitrose, which for those who don't know is a high-end supermarket chain here in the UK, and how he ensures UX can have the most impact and benefit on digital products and services. He also discusses the trials and tribulations of user testing and offers some tips for aspiring UX designers wanting to get into the industry. Finally, he plays my three-card challenge to share his favorite UX tool, his favorite UX technique, and a current trend he sees in user experience. I hope you enjoy the episode. My guest this week is Robin Potter. Robin's a lead UX designer at Waitrose, and he and I have worked together in the past, and uh, it's, it's great to have you on the show, Robin. Uh, thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. So tell me first a little bit about uh, your role and kind of the team you work in and the kind of work you do day to day. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I've been um, a UX designer at Waitrose for about three and a half um, years now. Um, I, I went there as a contractor and I'm, I've been permanent for the last year and a half. Um, and it was always a kind of a, a UX and a UI set up with a design team. But just in the last six months, we've been restructured and we've moved to being uh, all product designers now. So we're supposed to be you know, UX and UI all rolled into one. So one designer per agile scrum product team, which for me personally, I, I quite like, you know, I, I was always slightly reticent about getting too much into the UI side. I've always liked it, but I'm not sure if I considered myself to be an amazing visual designer, but you know, UI and visual design, they're not quite the same thing. So I've been really enjoying the last few months, just, you know, suddenly having to do all the UI and produce those final high fidelity um, assets, all that stuff and using the software. Um, really like all that. So it's been good. Um, so we have like an experienced design team. Um, there's probably about 15 of us at the moment. It's grown a lot in the last in the last three years. It was about a third of the size when I first started. Um, a small research team, which has grown from one person. It's now now three. Um, and then you know, there are a bunch of product teams. We're, we're agile, you know, as, as most places are these days. Uh, so we've got product managers and lots of product teams. And like I said, one designer. Uh, per agile scrum team, product owner, developers, testers, all, all that kind of thing. Probably quite a usual setup, I imagine, these days for any agile uh, digital department, I would have thought. Right, right. Interesting. And taking a step back, kind of how did you get into working in, in digital and, and user experience in particular? Uh, okay, so I um, I started when I was at school, basically. I um, We got the internet at home when I was about 16, about nine, back in 1995. And uh, uh, you know, my best friend at the time, he'd already done a bit of HTML and, you know, put stuff online, you know, even by that point. So he taught, taught me the ropes and I, you know, I was always into graphic design at school and, and good at arts, uh, like graphic design. And then suddenly I realized you can, you can design stuff on a computer, put it online, send the URL to someone and then they can see it. And, uh, so I just love that idea of being able to suddenly self-publish and put stuff up there. And I was always sort of looking for little projects to work on, like web design projects and, about the time I got to university, I did an English degree at uni, which completely non-vocational and unrelated to what I ended up doing. <laughs> uh, but I knew straight away, like, you know, that I wasn't, didn't want to be a teacher and I wasn't sure what I was going to do with that degree. So I was like working in some other days doing uh, websites for like a, a family friend type things, you know. So um, you know, my best friend, the guy who taught me HTML, I did a website for his dad who owned a computer game shop in, in Walthamstow. And then his best friend, he owned a, um, electronics business in St Albans, uh, like a local kitchen showroom, uh, all of this stuff during the summer holidays or just after I finished university as a way just to like, you know, just to have something to, to design and uh, to put online, you right. know, sort of running out of ideas of things to make for myself. Right. Um, and I just like the idea of having to lay stuff out and all that. And then, you know, so I got in fairly early on. Um, and then I, you know, I, when I 
left university, I got a job at West Finland. West Finland's Police was my first job, and it was I think the title was actually Webmaster. So that's going oh, back a bit right. when when that when that was a title, um, and that was a kind of catch-all. The web person does everything, you know, right. writes the yeah. content, does the design, uploads it, you know, maintains it. Uh, very early days, that was about two thousand. Um, and then went travelling for about a year. And when I came back, I actually found it really hard to get another job as kind of a web designer, because uh, just in that short period, the early two thousands, it had, the disciplines had kind of branched a little bit. So. You no, know, you no longer had a webmaster or a single web designer. You had web developers, uh, visual designers who were expected to be graphic design trained, you know, graduates, and uh, and then maybe in the more content content side of things as well. Um, so eventually, I got a job um, at Oxfordshire County Council as web editor, which is a very content focused role. Right. And that was um, in the uh, communications and PR team. Um, but I was I was there for about ten years overall, and and in that time. I just gradually got into what what I eventually realised was UX. You know, fairly early on, we um we were all trained up. You know, me and, and the rest of the web team were trained up by a woman called Caroline Jarrett, who is you know yes, done quite yeah, a lot yeah. in the UX space. You know her. So she yeah. came in. I didn't didn't know she, who she was at the time, and um, she came in to tr- uh, train us up onto how to run usability testing, how to run right. a card sort, how to analyse the results, all of this stuff that um I had no idea about at the time. Um, and then I got really into like the whole like you know prototyping, sort of low fidelity prototyping, wireframing, um, and all, all of that user research stuff was all was all new to me. And this was about two thousand and three, two thousand and four. Um, but I, you know, I knew I really liked it, and I sort of spent as much time as I could doing it in that role, even though it wasn't really my job. So I was always trying to you know get into that side of it. But then for a long, you know, I was doing that for a long time, but I had no idea that it, that it was a job unto itself. Um, and, you know, I was, I was there for ages and then I was thinking, oh, I, love, I love this part of the job, but then I can't, you know, it's not, it's not a real job, is it? You know, I'm not, I'm still not a designer. I'm not a graphic yeah. designer, a visual designer. I'm not definitely not a developer. I can't, can't code. I got as far as uh, learning, trying to learn JavaScript and thought that's, that's too much. I just can't do it. Not for you. Um, not for me. And I eventually, you know, I, you know, after my son was born, I was, at, you know, you, you have those NCT classes where you meet other new parents yeah i remember I was describing, you know that's it yeah and i was talking to a guy um, about what i do at work and he said oh you're you're a ux designer then and i was like oh right really and this must have been about 2012 2013 right. and just having those two words something to search for on job sites something to look into and thought, look up the job descriptions and i thought oh that's it that's what i'm doing that's what i love doing like a uh, hook so that you can kind of focus on exactly yeah. exactly and before that i just didn't i didn't realize it was a job i knew that Obviously, your big tech companies would would have this yep. kind of thing going. An information architect was a kind of another job title that was around, I guess, just before that. But you know, there was there wasn't like local jobs that you know in information architects. It was very much a, a rare thing. But I think user experience designer or user experience architect was becoming a thing around that time, and it suddenly just gave me a something to search for. And then um, I started attending uh, UX meetups at UX Oxford, which is where I met. Francis from from Heathollis, right? Um, and just that's like where you and I used to work a few years back. Yep. Exactly, and that's where I met you. You know, I got that job just through networking. Um, you know, I I don't know why I didn't search for jobs or really apply for jobs. I just thought I'd try and meet people locally who were doing it and find out more about it, and just see see what jobs are available around or what companies or agencies. And then that's you know that's where we met. That's how I got into it really, and that was about 2013, 2014, I think. So you've been in this game a long time, and it sounds like you've come quite a interesting route into it. I think one of the things that fascinates me about UX is the different avenues people come into it from. People come from psychology backgrounds, people come from anthropology, people come from computer science, English degrees in your case. I mean, I was a modern linguist originally, and then did a psychology master's to kind of pivot into user experience. But yeah, interesting. So what would you say then are the kind of key characteristics or, or personality traits that, that make someone a good UX designer? Um, so I think personally, I'm, I'm probably, it's a bit of a cliche, I suppose, but probably empathy, just in, in, in a general sense, just right. um, a, a kind of desire to understand what, other, what makes other people tick and to understand their viewpoints. Um, probably also quite a lot of um, humility. I had this kind of misconception before I got into UX full time that 
it will be full of uh, smart smart Alex who all, all knew best. Right. Um, and you know, would uh, would pontificate about the best way to design right. something. Um, but really, it's about understanding what what you do and what you don't know, and being aware that you you often you you don't know how your designs are going to perform. I mean, you, you you might understand best practice and have done a lot of uh, you know have a lot of experience or research, but until you really talk to users and test things, you don't yeah. you don't really know what they, how they're going to react. Um, so you know that 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 knowledge that awareness of how much you know there there is to learn and to understand about people is pro- probably a good thing. Yeah. Um, and yeah. and what what do you love about what you do? What gets you up in the morning and gets you excited? Um, well, I've been quite lucky. The last two major roles I've had, uh, Waitrose and Three, Three Mobile, you know, yep. mobile telephony, um, was working on things that I myself actually use. Right. <laughs> you know, so when I when I when I worked at Three, I got you know I had a Three contract on my phone. I was working yep. on the app, so I was you know so I was using the app that I was working on, and now. Now I work at Waitrose and we get the nice uh, Waitrose discount on the food. You know, we do all our weekly shop at Waitrose and you know, I've been nice there long enough now. to have. <laughs> it's, oh yeah, it's a great perk. Um, but, but just the fact that, you know, I've been there long enough now, the stuff that I've worked on quite a lot of it is live. And when I do my weekly shop, I'm actually using a bunch of it and actually feel like I'm benefit, benefiting from it. You know, right. you know, doing your weekly grocery shop, it's not much fun. You want to get it done quickly. It's quite quite onerous. And to be able to have those things on the website that speed it up or make it a bit easier that I've had a hand in is really gratifying. So I've been quite lucky to be able to, to do that, I think. Right, right. And on the flip side, I have to ask you what kind of frustrates you or, or, or challenges you or make you kind of tear your hair out in terms of kind of this world and your work day to day? Um, I, I guess, you know, it's no, one, no one's fault, but it, it can take a long time for things to, to, to go through the pipelines and get live, can't it? I right. mean, Right. I don't know how you, how you found it, Mike, but um, you know you, you designed something, um, and then maybe six months later it's still not not quite there, or or, yeah. or it's been delayed and that kind of thing, and that that can be frustrating. I mean, even in you know the whole point of agile is that you know stuff gets turned around quickly and put live, yeah, before before the landscape has changed. You know that's the whole point of it, but it, it's still it's just it just amazes me. You know it, it can take longer to make a website than it can to build a building do you know what i mean it's, yeah. it's still a quite a laborious process or, or worst of all is when you get close to the kind of uh, it's ready for launch and someone in their infinite wisdom decides to pull the plug on it that's happened to me in the oh plug. yeah a oh, large yeah. Yeah. organization which will remain nameless we were a bunch of us worked for many months on a product which i you know we all thought was really good was well tested was was well designed and they just decided at the last minute to, to pull the product which was a little bit gutting because it didn't seem to be a huge amount of rationale for that but yeah I, 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 yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Um, yeah. What advice and tips then would you give someone who, like an aspiring UX designer, if someone came to you and said, look, I'm fresh out of college and I'm thinking of getting into this world, or even if they're older and they were in a different discipline, let's say, I don't know, they were marketing, for example, and said, I love the sound of UX. I want to know more. I want to get into it. What would you say to them? So, yeah, I did. I spoke to, um, I got put in touch with someone who was in that position recently who was looking for some advice on how to get into it. And I think, Probably the best thing I could come up with was that there's nothing, there's nothing holding you back from kind of self self-publishing work and doing doing your own work, just off your own steam. You don't you don't have to wait for anyone to employ you to, to to research or test or improve an interface. You can take any popular app or, or website and look at it. Maybe even look at things like uh, the App Store reviews and see what things people are complaining about or what issues that people are having and think right, okay, I'm going to have a have a pop at improving this and. Right. You know, these days you can just run your own research, can't you? You can rope in friends and family. You can use a test using, you know, web conference, you know, conferencing software. You can record the screen. Yeah. Um. You you can use free tools for like running any kind of research. Really, you know, you can interview people. You just rope rope in anyone that you know, and then you can, you know, you can you can just redesign a, a commercially available app or website or just one element of it. Right. And just rework it and try and solve a problem that you think is there, and just you know write that up. You you can publish your results on, on medium or, or your, your own blog or anything or on youtube right. um, there's, nothing, there's nothing stopping anyone from if they want to get experience in it but they haven't you know they haven't been given a break to just start to do it themselves and just show that show that initiative and you know you, can, you know that's going to be more valuable than a than a cv i would i would say right right 
so that's it's really interesting you mentioned medium there because i know that you wrote a, a very interesting blog posting recently about a particular kind of case study that you've been working on at waitrose could you tell us a little bit about that because i think there's lots of kind of good lessons that came out of that yeah yeah i mean the first the first good lesson that came out of that was just um publishing that was the first blog i published i think um and i've been meaning to do it for ages you know i've been doing doing this for a long time and i've sort of often written down ideas of what i would blog about but i think we've spoken about this before but yeah i don't i never liked the idea of trying to you know write anything clickbaity or have a hot take on something or or pontificate about you know trying to grab attention you know yeah. we often think you know what, what what could i say that's going to be uh new and interesting or people kind of humble bragging about stuff as they they tend to do often on social yes. media. And, yeah, exactly. Quite, quite easily detectable and, you know, that, that kind of thing, <laughs> isn't it? Not, not putting. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the great thing is that, you know, at Waitrose, they've recently started a, a Medium account and just encourage people, you know, just to communicate what, what they've been doing. And there's not any really real rules on it, just common sense stuff. So then I was able to just publish an article about some recent work that we've been doing. So I didn't, didn't have to make up a, you know, my own, you know, amazing opinion on things. It was just about, this is a problem we had. Uh, this is how we tackled it. And this was the outcome. And, you know, maybe you can learn something from that. Um, so it was just quite nice to have the opportunity to, you know, just, just you know, just create a blog and, and publish stuff that we've worked on. Right. Um, and could you tell us a little bit more about that? Kind of exactly what, what was the problem that you were kind of trying to solve and how did yeah. you solving it? So we had a, a kind of a live problem on the website um, where we, ma we made a change to um, the design. I think we moved the button or we renamed the button or something. Uh, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it created a load of calls to the call center immediately right. the next day. You know, as soon as it went live, oh, uh, really, people really, went... It was that sort of quick? There was... Yeah, because, you know, you can imagine how many orders are coming through Waitrose every day. And what we'd done is we'd there was a problem with one of the menus and we probably didn't realize how big a problem it was until we made the design completely reliant on this menu. And now suddenly people couldn't amend their grocery order. You know, um, there was a bunch of people who, for whom this menu did, didn't work, had a bug, uh, an actual technical bug. Um, it didn't work. And because we'd, you know, now put all of the, you know, they had to use it to amend their order. There's no other way of amending your order. It just created a bunch of problems. So we had to roll that back. Um, and then we had to kind of work out, well, how are we going to fix, how are we going to fix the initial problem? And that's right. The initial problem was um, people couldn't work out how to cancel an order. Right? Right. So we made a change to try and make that more obvious. Um, and in doing so, we made, a, we made the problem worse and people couldn't then amend their order. So we had to roll it back. But we still had this original problem of, how can we make it easier for people to cancel their order? And, you know, wh where are they getting stuck? Why are they not getting it? Um, so we, you know, we, we, ma we managed to come up with a solution for that problem pretty quick because, you know, we had some ideas. We had sort of two ideas that cropped up, two, 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 two key designs, and we weren't quite sure which one would work best. Right. Um, but around that time, we just got access to a bunch of um, new research tools. So um, online, unmoderated, um, user testing, that kind of stuff. Um, whereas before, we we only had the user testing lab in, in the office, which we weren't using. This was COVID, <laughs> right, COVID of times. Course. Yep, yep. Uh, and in any case, you know, the, the lab is great, but there's like you know a month lead time to do anything. You know, you've got to recruit people, plan it all yeah. in. Yeah. If a session happens to be coming up in the next few days, great. But it could be, it could have been two, three weeks away. Right. Um, but now we have accounts with places like usertesting.com, which run um, unmoderated user testing sessions, and they have their own panel of uh, participants. You know, we were able to uh, put both of these potential solutions um, through testing mm. within hours, do you know what I mean? And then the results came back with, you know, for both of those tests within a couple of hours. So just tell us a little bit more about unmoderated testing, kind of what you mean by that for people that aren't familiar with the term. Yeah. So. Um, we always ran moderate. I've always done moderated testing or been involved in them. But by that, I mean, like, you know, it's in person, you know, you have a moderator talking to test participants one on one, usually in the same room. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, carrying out tasks on the website and the facilitator will, you know, tell them what they did, you know, the, the scenario is and then prompt them and observe and ask questions. And that's all done live. 
uh, and we would, you know, we had our, like I say, we had our own lab in Waitrose where we could, you know, have a nice comfortable room for the participants to come to. And then we would observe it in another room down the corridor. And that was all great. That's all good. And that's what, you know, I've always worked on really. Um, but then, you know, once COVID came along, we had to move to remote testing, i.e., you know, using right, video conferencing software like this. Yeah. Um, and then just recording the screen. And actually that made things, I, I feel like, um, remote testing was a lot better. What is, is a lot better? I don't know. What, I don't know what you found, but I just feel like uh, participants are more comfortable. They're using their own equipment. They're happy in their own space. And um, I found a lot of the times when they're in a lab, it's an unfamiliar setup. Yeah. Mouse. They're sort of scared to touch the, touch anything or scroll. Yeah. And then they, sometimes they lose it. I don't know if you found a similar thing. It's it's really interesting because I was going to ask you about this exact thing that the sort of downsides and the upsides from t the point of view of recruiting quickly, getting people more comfortable in sessions. I totally agree. Mm -hmm. I mean, the idea of bringing people into this this building. I mean, there's, we've all used a bunch of different labs, I'm sure, typically in London, in my case, where they yeah. come in and there's a sort of bowl of sweets and they sit in a basically a waiting room and then they're taken into this room with cameras pointing at them and there's a, a sort of screen on one side through which it's kind of obvious that there are people sitting behind it looking at them as they're doing this test <laughs> it's not very relaxing <laughs> and despite no, the best efforts of a moderator it's not a very natural environment I, um, as, as i've been did. a test participant once you know ages ago and even though i knew how it worked and i knew it was it was we weren't even running a usability test i was just helping them and, and even then i felt so bad that i couldn't use their crappy system yeah. um you know i didn't understand why i suppose you know i didn't i could, couldn't see what to do and then i just you know, I quickly realized how tough it must be for a test participants you tell them over and over again we're not testing you we're testing yeah. the system yeah. you know you can be as nice as you want but if they can't do the task most people will, will feel bad feel yeah. like they failed feel like they let you down of course of course and then they get all yeah. defensive and they and it just completely messes up your results whereas yes, exactly. just, if they're sitting on their own at home in in a you know in their tracksuit with a cup of tea uh, on their own laptop or tablet it, it's it's a much better uh, and it's it's interesting because i mentioned you know going back to what we were originally testing that we, we we then tested it using unmoderated sessions where it's kind of the reverse problem where you, you've got um, people who are, all, who are almost like professional testers where they, yeah. you know, they get a nominal fee for each one they do. Each session they do probably takes them about 20 minutes and they get five pounds or whatever. But you can tell they've done so many of these tests because yep. they just supplement their income with it, you know, when they've got spare 20 minutes and then they're, they're almost too good and yep. they're too confident and they start to offer, you know, design tips or, yes, or, yeah, or they're yeah. too critical. And then, you know, you, you see them using the system fine, then they sort of start to complain about stuff. And then you think, well, you know, I just saw you use it and you didn't have a problem. So yeah. all this other stuff you're saying is kind of, uh, you know, not that's, relevant. That's also very familiar. It's funny because on the project I'm working on, my current client is a, is, is a government client. We've started doing a lot of unmoderated testing just to speed stuff up because we're dealing with UK citizens who are abroad who kind of need to use foreign government services. But need to deal with the British government as part of that. And it's, yeah, from a global recruitment point of view, it's much quicker to use some of these, you know, panels online and on moderated testing tools. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, just so just to, just to finish off, so when just now we have access to those tools, you know, the unmoderated testing, just because the results come back so quick. Yeah. And the great thing is you, you can watch the playback. You can speed up the playback. <laughs> so you don't have to watch them, right. you know, struggling through things or being a bit slow. You can put it onto two times two times speed yeah um skip through the stuff where they're like you know it's not relevant or the beginning and the end um you know i was able to review these videos in super quick time and then iterate on the design and retest it the same day wow. you know you just couldn't you couldn't do that you know before unless you use an unmoderated system on some of these online tools that are available now um so that was you know that was just great to be able to identify a problem come up with a solution test the solution iterate on it test it again within less than two days do you know what i mean that was that was great interesting so has that changed the way you work has that kind of experience i'm not saying in everything you do but is it kind of uh, changed the way you approach certain problems yeah uh definitely i mean i think before i mean m most places i've been to we, we we focused a lot on moderated usability testing one-to-one -one usability testing yeah and those sessions you know they happen infrequently you know, once every two weeks, maybe at most, they're quite expensive. Yeah. Um, you really have to get everything prepared in advance. You sometimes have to test multiple things with the same 
participant so you're kind of cramming quite a lot into a session kind of jumping about a bit yeah. um and that's quite limiting i think you, you know you you really have to choose what you want to test you can't test everything i mean we still don't test everything you know but but you can just test much smaller things now like um you know just l little things you know is this going to work or is, or is it not there's one little thing you can run a two minute test and, and just find out and just we have a much wider suite of tools now so that for whatever usability issue or whatever hypothesis we're working on there are you can pick the right tool for the job whereas before we were trying to crowbar i think or i've you know where I, the way i places i've worked before we're often trying to crowbar in a problem in, into the into the usability test scenario right. or, or what a usability test can do for you uh, but there's loads of techniques aren't there there's 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 first click tests there's five second tests there's yeah. all yeah. sorts of different things you can do and they all each one is useful in different scenarios and having having access to that full range of tools means right. that you can you can pick the right one for the job and that's you know where we've got to a waitrose and that's been really good interesting it's funny you mentioned tools and techniques so i've got a little challenge for you later which we'll come back to but um yeah that's interesting so how it kind of in your opinion and your experience can ux designers like you kind of ensure you have uh a, a sort of maximum impact on on the product team and on the kind of products and service that you're working on yeah i mean a, a big thing i don't know whether it's self-evident or not but you know you i think ux designers they have they have to be articulate and, and be able to communicate communicate well you're you're very often trying to convince people to do something aren't you you're trying to convince a product owner or some stakeholder who maybe doesn't understand design or even digital you know why 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 something should be done or, or why a design you've come up with you know why it's a good idea yeah. so a lot a lot of it is about being able to articulate that and present it um it's an overused phrase but the telling a story you know, you know right. what i mean yeah. you have to be able to present evidence in a way that people get you can't just throw a load of numbers at them or expect them to watch an hour-long video you, you know you have to really um you have to really be able to sell sell what you're doing i think and you know defend what you're doing as well right um so that's and, that's really key and and how do you do that in terms of kind of presenting your findings kind of selling the story all of the things that you've just mentioned what kind of uh, approach do you adopt typically or, or you whether it be you individually or kind of you as a team that, that you're designing yeah um it's it's, it's kind of a, a skill isn't it really i'm not sure it's, it's almost like one of those things you have to just be able to get people on board um i'm not sure if i have any particular special techniques i mean one thing i do like to do because i'm i'm quite good at it and i enjoy it is creating fairly interactive prototypes so you know interactive things so yeah this, this works really well if we're trying to kind of sell a, a concept or just get people excited about a vision for something right um if you can if you can prototype it to the point where someone can, can click around you know it kind of looks and feels a bit like a real website or real app right um a little bit you know and it has the visuals and it's fairly high fidelity suddenly you know whoever it is whether it's you know developers or or someone who's a bit less you know digital savvy can can just get what you're going for and that can help to just to build a bit of excitement around the concept and get everyone on board with it so that's something i i like to do but you know i'm aware that prototyping can be quite a time-consuming endeavor right right yeah no absolutely um and the kind of oft used term user-centered design kind of what does that mean to you you know how would you characterize user-centered design for someone who goes well what does that mean um i suppose always always thinking from the point of view of 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 the end user i'm not, i i guess you know when you're when you are negotiating you know in a work environment about you know what what work needs to be done and then you've got you know you're probably there's probably going to be people who are representing the sales side of things or or the marketing aspect of the job you know increasing sales or getting a message out there um and they're not necessarily going to be you know it's not their job necessarily to think about the user experience or right. or, or, or how happy the user is when they are using the tool um so i suppose user-centered design you know is is about bringing the you know representing the customer and bringing bringing them in even if it's only metaphorically in, into all the decisions that are made yeah and it's interesting absolutely and and the thing with you know the term user is it's all very well thinking of sort of i suppose customers and clients and the kind of external side but typically with services and products there are also kind of internal users 
and how much of that feeds into kind of the work you do and the sort of research and design elements uh, I mean I'm interested for example that you talked about the call center there and that sense mm. of you know there's obviously a whole bunch of people internally who are involved in the after effect of the products that you're in help designing What's yeah thinking about internal users yeah yeah so um well yeah i mean i haven't really done that much i mean we, we always have to make sure that um you know the the call center you know the customer contact type people are, are aware of any big changes we're making because they're going to get they're going to get calls about it so we do have a kind of process for that the last couple of places i've worked have to make sure they're they're informed of anything um but internal users i mean i guess i haven't done that much work with um kind of internal users i've done in i've worked on an intranet before which again was good because i was a user of that intranet so one of the big things we fixed was the phone you know kind of like personnel directory right. um and there's another example of where i could actually fix it something that i used every day and make it better for myself so, right. so that was good but um yeah i don't know i haven't done much internal stuff really i mean uh most i'm quite lucky that most of the stuff i've worked on and the stuff i like working on is kind of fairly mass market Right. So when you're trying to recruit recruit people to test with, it can kind of be anyone because these are like, you know, things that anyone would use. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm interested, again, going back to you said the kind of the call center, like, you know, phones lit up after that effect. Mm. How does it feel kind of day to day working on such a, I suppose, sort of business critical part of, of, of things and obviously the, the impact of the changes that you make as a team yeah. has a direct effect instantaneously, as you said, pretty much on, on the end user. Yeah, which is not yeah. the same for, I mean, for example, in my case, I'm working on typically on government services, which take months to launch and uh, are, you know, are, are the, 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 it's a very different kind of demographic and a different sort of user set. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, certainly at Waitrose, we're into the phase now of we're doing continuous improvement. When I was first there, it was all about re replatforming. So just taking stuff from the old website and putting it onto the new website, which was, you know, it was, it was all becoming finally responsive and a new content management system. So that was kind of like porting stuff across. So, but now we're in, into the realms of, you know, just con continually improving it. Um, so, you know, everything is monitored quite closely. So you want to make a little change because, you know, the customers are complaining about it or you think, well, you know, um, this is not best practice. I've, you know, there's a, this is an optimal design, but, you know, you do always have to be aware of the commercial impact and, you'd always get picked up on the fact, you know, the, the metrics, the metrics are changing in real time. So you put something live and right. someone's graph goes down and uh, right. they're like, hang on, I'm responsible for this, for these right. figures. And that now they're, now they're dropping. So why have we done this? You know, can we roll it back? Um, so there is always that constant dialogue with, um, I guess, the more commercial teams to make sure we're not going to tank any of their key metrics or, uh, or brewing anything so um we, we do have to be we do we do a lot of um, a b testing actually now we we put stuff live in a, in an a b right. sort of testing format so you know if we're worried about you know if there's any kind of worry about um if it's going to have a negative unfore unforeseen negative effect we could put it live to five ten percent and just track that so it doesn't doesn't kill the whole site <laughs> yeah and then you're not yeah. feeling the heat or being kind of <laughs> held over the coals by as you say, the people with the with the numbers. Yeah. Um, what about your own career? Kind of, where do you see it going in the next few years? What what you know, what kind of particular skills do you want to develop, or, or you know, how do you see yourself growing as a UX designer? Yeah. So I did often wonder, you know, would I end up in a more of a management position? That seems to be the trajectory within right within a corporate setting, isn't it? You eventually become a manager, and <laughs> that's just what right. happens. Um, but I think certainly for now, I, I'm quite, I'm, I do enjoy the, the being on the, at the coal face, doing the design work and coming up with solutions. Right. I, um, I feel a bit, I feel like I wouldn't want to be, um, too far in the kind of strategy or the management side of things or leadership because I just, you know, I just love, I love working in product teams. I love being involved in user research and seeing, seeing the user research happening and then coming up with those know solving those problems um so i'm actually you know i'm quite happy doing what i'm doing at the moment um something i have been looking into recently i don't necessarily see myself getting into it but is is video game design okay. so um you know so there's a whole extra there's a you know video games obviously have that they have their own interfaces and their own right. menu systems and front ends and that kind of thing but and then you know there's a lot of research user research and in, in, in game design as well you know 
yeah, for sure. I suppose it, it makes you know e-commerce or government interfaces seem simple because the objective there is always to make it easy to use, right? But in a video game, it's about making it making the game understandable, but not yeah. too easy, yeah. challenging, engaging, not too handholdy, but yeah. just enough so the user knows what to do, or the player knows what to do. So there's a whole discipline in user research now where you, you know, people, you know, observe playing games and do they get it? Do they understand what they need to do? Right. Um, or, or And then are they having fun, which is a whole extra thing, isn't it? You know, no one has fun using a government form. Or... <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we, we try our best efforts to remove yeah. some of the pain, but I agree it's hard to make it, <laughs> hard to make it fun. Brilliant. Um, that's all been really fascinating. Thanks so much, Robin. I've got one last thing. I just thought I'd mix things up a little bit at the end. So are you ready to play my three-card challenge? So it's the first time Absolutely. I'm going to try this. So I've got here three um, playing cards. And what I'm going to do is ask you, so there are three top tips. So one of uh, these is tools. So a tool that you use all the time in the work that you do, and you've touched on kind of some of this already, but a particular tool that you is your favorite and you and you find it most useful. The second one is techniques. So a kind of UX technique, whether it be research or design, that you use regularly and you find kind of particularly helpful in, in the work you do day to day. And the last one is is trends. So kind of a, a trend that you see growing or becoming kind of more common in the world of UX uh, over the next year or so. So how does that sound? Go for it. Put you on the spot here. Okay, so I've got these three cards here. So you can see that there's a club, there's a diamond, and there's a heart. And on the back of each of these, I've written either tool, technique, or trend. So pick pick the first one. Okay, give me the heart. Okay, so the heart is tool. So tell tool. me kind of about the tool. Just tell a little bit about kind of a particular tool that you use. And, and Fine. You okay, well, given that I'm moving more into a bit more UI recently, We've just recently started using uh, Figma, which right. is, a, is a UI design tool. It's sort of rapidly becoming the the main one, I would say. Yeah. And it's just it's just amazing. You know, I've, I've used a few different tools before for UX and UI, um, but this one is just brilliant, especially because you know we're all working remotely at the moment, or or we were. Um, and Figma, it's actually incredibly. It's a it's a it's basically a web a really complicated web app, and I didn't know this until recently. Um, because I've got the downloaded version, but it's essentially built, you know, using web app technology. So it's got um, that multiplayer aspect where you can have multiple cursors, right. you know, you know, like you might have seen it on like uh, sort of whiteboarding type software right. where you can like Miro, something. like exactly like Miro. So we all you're all moving stuff around and contributing. Yeah, but you can you can now do the UI like that, so you can be designing with someone, right, talking to them at the same time and both chipping in and moving stuff around. Um, and it's just it's just brilliant. It's just come along at just the right time for for remote working. Um, I've always been I've always used Azure for for UX because it was so good at. Well, right. I still do use it. It's, it's, I think it's unparalleled for prototyping, but for actual UI and you know scaling that UI across you know would be reusable components and having it lay out really well and just yeah like that 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 collaboration aspect. Right. Just really really good. Figma is your, your top tip then for, for tools. Yes. Interesting. And and just kind of on that note, things like Sketch, which is obviously another one that sort of is, seems to be fading a little bit now, and Adobe XD, amongst others. Kind of, what, Have you used either of those? And what's your view? Yeah, I've, I've used Sketch a little bit. Um, I think, you know, Figma is definitely in that same ballpark as, as Sketch and, yeah. and XD. Um, X, I mean, I, I've never used really used XD, but I always got the impression it was never quite got fully featured. Right. Um, compared to some of the other tools, Sketch, you know, you know, really good, fine, but I don't know. I never, I never got into it enough, and just Figma seems to do everything, everything, and be very fully featured, but just do everything really, really well, and just work. It's, it's incredible, really. There you go. You should be on commission. Yeah, um, should be. <laughs> brilliant. Right, we got two more cards. Um, diamonds. You're going to take the diamond. On the back of diamond is, uh, sorry, trend. So trend. You can see that trend. So yeah. tell me about a kind of trend in UX that you think is becoming. Oh, I always find I always find this tricky. I'm not I'm not sure if you agree, uh, Mike, as another UX designer researcher, but I, I tend to avoid trend trendiness, or, or yeah. I don't tend to look at you know <laughs> trends because I think if you want to, you know, probably maybe it's just the jobs that I've worked in. You want everything to be 
as usable as possible. Yes. So you tend to stick to with what's tried and tested, you know, what are users familiar with. Yeah. Uh, so jumping too quickly into into what's up and coming and uh, what's trendy or look, look, looking ahead like that, it's almost like, well, are customers or users going to be ready, ready for it? And it's that old chestnut, today's fashion is tomorrow's fancy dress. Mm. It's, um, yeah. But go on, I think, I'll, I'll put you on the spot. It's okay. I mean, in, in, you, I, mean I think... think? In the, I mean, the thing is, in, in, I'm not, I'm not really a UI designer, but in the UI space, there's always new. There is like, you know, new fashions coming along, isn't there? And uh, you know, something that will look old hat in five years um, that looks good currently. Um, um, but I just, I just think um, because human behaviour changes at such a glacial pace, it's, um, it, it's quite rare that something comes along which is really going to change, change things up. I mean, obviously, we, you know, we, we've got, you know, most smartphones now that we didn't have when I started out and you know I suppose a little thing on that which I noticed about a couple of years ago is saving saving stuff you know when when the web first started you have like bookmarks right. um, or, or favorites or you'd have the save as function in your browser right um, tools for saving stuff whereas now everyone's got phones you, you know I've realized people people will take a screenshot to save yeah. something if they want to record it like a order confirmation or a recipe or anything or a photo they'll just do a screenshot Right. And just just that you know that new technique of this is how I record things for later and put it to one side. It's that kind of it works works the same way on every you know whatever app you're on on your phone. You always press the same buttons to do it. It always gets saved in the same place, and it's easy to do. So that's an that was an interesting thing I've noticed in the last couple of years is that idea of screenshotting everything to save it. Yeah. So but that's that's, that's already here. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? But then, you know, we all do that, and I totally do that. But the flip side yeah. then is you end up with it in a photo stream with thousands of pictures of your children or your dog or something else. And unless yeah. you kind of then favorite the particular photos, you're scroll. I find myself scrolling through hundreds of photos going, where on earth was that receipt that I took a picture of like yeah. three days yeah. ago? I'm uh, not sure if the iPhone does this already, but I think it's it's already categorizes out screenshots for you. So you can at least find yeah, all, your, all yeah. of your. Yeah. Screen, yeah, but it needs to start recognizing receipts, doesn't it? And things like that, and yes. doing it for you. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. I, okay. I think on the trends one, I'm just going to, I don't know if anyone's going to solve it, but I'm just, the thing I'm most looking forward to is if someone solves authentication and passwords and just yeah, yeah. comes up with, I think, I think again, Apple made inroads. They've, they've, similar to Apple Pay, they did introduce something, which is a kind of, you know, authentication, you know, like platform wide authentication system where you would just use your Apple ID, but it still needs, you know, other websites and apps to, to buy into it in the same way that they do with Apple Pay. So I don't know, it's probably not a good thing for, you know, these big, big tech companies to control so much. But God, if we could simplify authentication and passwords and not have to do all that, it'd be such a huge improvement, wouldn't it? Well, I, yeah, I remember, you know, five, six years ago at a large fintech company I worked at, you know, we th there was discussions then around kind of coming up with alternative ways of doing passwords. I mean, this has been talked about for years and years, hasn't it? Yeah. You're absolutely right. It drives us all potty. We've got so many passwords. Um, hard to remember. But, uh, yeah, that's a, a big nut to crack. Yeah. Um, right. Last one. Club. And on the back of this, I've written technique. So tell me about a, your favorite kind of UX technique. Okay, fine. So something I've noticed that I always do, and I've done it for years, is, and luckily because we've had I've had it available pretty much everywhere that I've worked, is to, um, we always have like a, a customer feedback survey that appears on the site, and you know it's run by a third party, and just you have that constant daily feedback, uh, verbatim feedback yeah. we call it, you know, um, you know, free text, people saying what they did and didn't like about their experience that day. Yeah. And I always rely so much on that. And I, especially at Waitrose, I, I read it read it every day. And um, we've actually got it being fed through into Slack. I'm sure most people know Slack is, in, you know, a corporate instant messaging software. And yeah. you have different channels for different things. So we have um, Slack channels set up now to feed through this, this verbatim feedback. Oh, and it just means that it's in the place where you're already looking. Right. You, you know, it's naturally bolded if you haven't looked at it. And there's right. new messages. Right. You know, you can start a conversation thread off any of these feedback uh, pieces of feedback, and anyone can be invited from from the organisation, or they yeah. can drop out, they can they can chip in. Um, and we've even started just attaching emojis to categorise them. So this happened organically. I've always thought in the past, how do you you have all this verbatim feedback coming in every day? How do you categorise it? You know, 
it's such an onerous task and what your category is going to be. Yeah. But we've just organically started attaching emojis for things that we're trying to track or things that we're interested in. Right. Um, so, you know, I've, I've been tracking um, problems with um, amending, amending orders at the moment, amending a grocery order. Right. There's been some issues with it. So I just, you know, make, you know, we, we make, make a new little emoji and yeah. then just stick that onto every bit of feedback that is relevant. And it's just a really organic, easy way of, of, of surfacing, talking about, and um, categorizing um, customer feedback. So everywhere I go now, I'm, and I always try and read as much as I can, just to you know really understand. You're constantly being re reinforced about what customers are enjoying right. and what they are complaining about, and it's always there. And it very quickly makes you an expert customer representative. Interesting. I like that. That's really nice. And yeah, I mean, Slack's a tool I use every day as well. And uh, the idea of kind of combining that almost yeah, user feedback in real time into, into your kind of yeah. normal workspace is, is great. Yeah. That's brilliant. Um, do you have any other kind of burning thoughts or comments and anything we've chatted about before I let you go? Well, something I wouldn't mind talking to you about because you're uh, you're probably a bit more in the discovery and research uh, side of things. Yeah. Um, and it was part of the um, talk I did for UX Oxford recently. Was we're getting a bit? I'm, well, I'm, I know I know that probably one of my weak spots is more in the metrics and the uh, quantitative research side of things. I've I've always preferred qualitative, like I just said about reading actual customer feedback and doing usability testing. I've, that's the stuff that to me helps me solve problems, but there's always a big push to, to prove the value of, of what you want to do and justify or quantify, you know, what's the return on investment going to be? And re just recently, I found it difficult to, you know, how, how do you put a uh, how, how do you put a price or an ROI on, on on UX work? And you know, how do you balance improvements to the user experience with, you know, I mean, you're in the public sector, but for me, it's like, you know increases in sales or you know it's fairly easy to put or to, to track clicks or to track sales or to track yeah, yeah. Uh, basket size that kind of thing but it's very hard to quantify user experience stuff beyond just very high level customer satisfaction ratings or net promoter score i don't know if you've tackled that at all or got any techniques it's a really interesting question isn't it and it's something that um yeah kind of focuses all our minds i mean as you say because most of the kind of you user research that i do is is qualitative in nature because we're kind of earlier in the piece so we're looking at kind of understanding the problem space coming up with solutions that we can then test before we put them live so you know it's kind of the beta live phase public beta phase of sort of government services that, that the analytics tend to kick in the kind of study of that but i guess it's around what baselining if you can kind of the current situation the current metrics and then over a period of time, once the solution, the new solution has been implemented, be able to kind of compare that with with um, you know what what the outcome is. But it's um, it's certainly I mean something personally I would like to kind of get into a bit more as well. It's uh, yeah I think there are, but it's I mean it's critical, isn't it? But it's, you're saying kind of some of the A/B testing and that kind of uh, work that you're doing as well before putting services live. I think that's um, certainly uh, you know a step in the right direction of kind of making you know more confident decisions. Yeah. So what what I found that we're doing a bit recently is we are we're running A/B tests to make sure that we don't don't ruin anything <laughs> with our designs, right. and it's, yeah. it's almost like a neg bit of a negative spin. It's like, well, we know that the design is better because we've tested it. We've done the usability testing, yeah. And you know, we're designers, so we know that we're making it better. Uh, we know that we're you know we we are improving the design and we're, we're addressing a user problem here. Um, and then we just we do we run the A/B test live. Just to make sure it's not going to negatively affect any kind of sales metrics or, you know, or, or things that are easily trackable. Now we can't, but it's very hard to track the positive side because you know A/B testing doesn't tell you how people are yeah. feeling or how happy they are. That's that all comes in quantitative. So that, that's the challenge I'm facing at the moment. I'm going to try and dig into it a bit more. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, for me, it's I think it's always around triangulating the types of research you do so it's not relying on purely quant or purely qual because you're absolutely right so quant will tell you kind of what's happening but it won't always tell you why things are happening and and, and qual will kind of get into the user's head hopefully and try and understand some of their needs and wants and motivations but you know it's very as we know it's very very hard it's kind of you know pointless to ask people what would you do in this situation there's no substitute for actually 
letting them go and do it. I mean, that's why personally I'm quite a big fan of diary studies. Um, mm. it, I mean, it's a it, it's more qual- qualitative than quantitative, but kind of over a bit. I guess it's less probably. Well, I suppose you could still do it with 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 you know grocery shopping over a period of time because it's a sort of mm-hmm. weekly activity. But that thing about kind of you know tracking behavior over time, where you're not there with the person all the time, so it's almost like unmoderated testing, where they can just sort of kind of. I, I did a government uh, project with the DFE last year, where we gave people connectivity. We gave them like either routers or Wi-Fi vouchers, or uh, kind of increased mobile phone data, and then over a period of time got them to use that data this was for families who kind of didn't have that uh, connectivity at home during the pandemic it was obviously around homeschooling and then track that over a period of time and then kind of every couple of days give us a uh, you know response on a really short and simple google form and that was really powerful in terms of kind of the both the quant and the qual kind of how they were getting on how the how the uh, technology was testing but also kind of their feelings and emotions as they went through it so yeah yeah, yeah definitely yeah things to ponder well listen i'm gonna leave it there thank you so much robin it's been lovely to chat to you uh i mean it's been a number of years ago since we worked together but uh um this has been great it's been really really nice to chat and thanks so much again for for coming on and for sharing all your knowledge and experience with us all and uh yeah wish you all the best for the future thanks thanks mike it's been been a pleasure it's been really nice to talk and uh yeah i hope um i hope people find it interesting Thanks very much for listening to the first episode of the Understanding Users podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Join me again next time when I'll be talking to Tom Devlin, founder and principal consultant at UserLab, which is a specialist user research agency based in Newcastle here in the UK. Until then, thanks, stay safe and stay user-centred.